things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. If I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to you, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The word of the Lord. Does anyone know what the thorn in the flesh is? Anyone want to take a stab at that? Uh, You'd probably be wrong. I don't know what it is either. I'm not going to tell you because I don't know. But we will talk about it. Um, And we're going to spend this week and next week uh, in our remaining study of 2 Corinthians uh, that started all the way back in the fall with 1 Corinthians. And we'll be starting a new series after Pentecost for the summer, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that on our blog and then uh, next week. But let me pray for our time today. God, as we wrap up this rather long reflection on Paul's letters to Corinth, I pray that you would instruct us, you would speak to us, that we would respond not just with learning new things or compiling new insights, but that we would respond with heart and mind and soul and in our very lives. And I pray that you would help us to find something in this text which we can attach our lives to, that we would be better people for having encountered this text, that we would live more fully into you and live more fully for the world that you've created. Be with us, guide us, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with the NPR series, This I Believe, but they basically record what people think about life, what motivates them, what captivates them, what are the central features of um, their worldview. And uh, they just basically have people read two or three minutes. And it's very interesting uh, to hear just everyday people reflect upon life. And in 2007, a gentleman named Miguel had this to say, I believe that weakness, the kind of weakness that allows human dignity to be blown to pieces is the strongest purifier of the soul. Twelve hours before her death, as I stared at my wife, sitting in pain on the wheelchair destiny had prepared, I had the most disgusting, disgraceful thought a human can ever devise. Her breast cancer-induced weakness impelled me to believe that the beautiful woman I had fallen in love with ten years past had now been reduced to ruins, human debris not worthy of me. I believe that pride, in its condition of mother of all bullies, of supreme punisher of everything weak, can only be overcome by the strength of weakness and the dignifying of the undignified. I believe that the level of God's commitment to a cause is inversely proportional to the level of pride and arrogance at the root of that cause. 
God is universal, but he is most committed to liberating the weak. He likes to reside amongst the weak. He is the strength of weakness. Nowadays, whenever destiny carries me to the realm of weakness, an inexperienced waiter on his first day at work, a slow-moving senior at the checkout counter, an undocumented immigrant daring to become like me, even a dying 33-year-old wife, I try as hard as I can to embrace and rejoice in weakness. For weakness, the kind of weakness that allows human dignity to be blown to pieces is God's most powerful way of teaching me that strength is not the capacity to master limbs or muster resources, but the faculties to suppress my pride and self-importance, the ability, the insight to abandon my own self and to become weak just as my beloved wife. On my soul's darkest hour, using nothing more than the strength of her God-given weakness so mightily revealed, the strength of weakness, this I believe. Well, that's the sermon right there. We're just going to pray and end up end it right there. But no, we are going to reflect a little bit on what Paul has to say about this concept of weakness because Paul talks about this journey that he's taken, visiting what he called the the third heaven, the very loftiest of places, and he moves down to the lowliest, his experience with great torment, what he calls the thorn. And he says that in this third heaven that he met with God, that he spoke with God. And here's what God is like. He's going to reveal it to us and to the Corinthians, that God moves in the same way that Paul did in this passage, from heaven, the loftiest of places, down to the lowliest. That in the person of his son Jesus, you see, he comes to live among and blessed, bless the lowliest and the weak. Now, it's easy to get lost in the interpretive difficulties of this text, speculating, well, what is the third heaven, and where was it, and what is the thorn that he's talking about? But I don't want us to miss, as Miguel led us to think about, weakness as a pathway to strength, and weakness actually as a pathway to God Himself. Now, let's look briefly at the context of the passage. We are going to talk a little bit about the, th- the third heaven and the thorn, and what this meant for Paul, what it meant for the Corinthians, and then hopefully what it means for us. Paul says, first of all, look, I've had this incredible experience, either in the body or out. He doesn't even remember, but he knows that he was taken up to what he calls the third heaven. But in describing it, just as we would say, details, Paul, tell us more, he says, nope, I'm not going to tell you about it. And he is highly elusive and very indirect. And if you try to piece together what he's talking about from the Greek, from the textual details, you don't get a whole lot of more clues because the word for heaven and paradise that he uses can mean the Garden of Eden, it can mean a place high above the earth, or it can just mean the place where God resides. So Paul is being fairly unspecific. And incidentally, if you're wondering if this is the Damascus Road experience when Paul met Jesus for the very first time and he had this radical conversion, this is not it because the math doesn't actually add up. If you do the math, it's probably about seven years after that experience. So this is a second type of vision that he has had. So it's not clear where 
the third heaven is, or maybe even what it is, but it's a little bit clear why, why he's talking about this. And Paul is, once again, one-upping those that are trying to destroy unity in the church at Corinth. He's one-upping these so-called super apostles that are trying to lead the church away from Paul. And he's basically saying, you, you have leaders who've had a vision. Well, I didn't have a vision. I actually met with God. He called me up to the third heaven. And this is a bit like when he lays out his resume in Philippians chapter 3. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, he says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, so forth and so on. He has a right to boast. He's been to the mountaintop. And it's because of that that he can actually have credibility in talking about weakness. Now, many of you don't know this, but I played college football. Well, I actually walked on and they let me practice. And sometimes they'd let me throw to an actual receiver. But most of the time, I and the other walk-on quarterback ran plays against the first-team defense and just got clobbered on every single play. I have no idea why I wanted to do this for free. I wasn't even on scholarship. Needless to say, that lasted a year, and I quit. But I get to say I played college football. But it's not something I really like to boast about. Yeah, because there's nothing to boast about, right? I got clobbered day to day, and I walked on. It wasn't like I was even invited. I mean, they invited me, but didn't give me any money. Now, however, if Tom Brady says, you know, I don't boast in my accomplishments, I don't boast in my stats or wins or acclaim, now we're listening because he might be the greatest of all time. He's actually been to the very pinnacle of his profession, so we actually take him seriously if he begins to say, well, that's not where I find my significance. Paul is saying, if you have anything to boast about, I can top it. By your standards, I'm exceedingly qualified to speak with authority. But that would be, if we're measuring ourselves this way, that would be to fundamentally misunderstand what Christianity is all about. He brings it up, and then he quickly changes the term and says, the real reason that you should listen to me is verse 6, by what I do and what I say. Basically, Paul's character and his integrity. That's what allows him to speak into the Corinthian situation with authority. He could boast in his extraordinary qualifications, but he chooses instead to boast in his weakness because this is what he wants the Corinthians to get. This is what Christianity is actually all about. And his experience with weakness comes from something very specific. He calls it the thorn in his flesh. Now, dozens of options have been presented as to what this thorn may be, and they're quite interesting if you want to look at a list. But the fact is, we don't really know, we can't know, and we don't need to know what exactly he's talking about. What we do know, however, that thorn is probably not the best rendering of the term. He's not talking about, like, accidentally pricking himself on a rose bush. He's not talking about an owie. He's talking about something that is very deadly, 
This word scallops means a wooden stake, like those that you would put in a hole and hope you'd cover it up and your enemy would fall into it. He's not talking about being pricked by something. He's talking about potential impalement, that this is something that actually threatens the future of his ministry. And also, it's not something that God has given him. It says it's given him by a messenger or an angel of Satan. It's meant to make Paul fall and die, but it backfires because whatever the thorn is, it doesn't undermine Paul's ministry, but it opens up a door for grace. It opens up a door for him to be able to articulate what Christianity is all about because, you see, Christianity doesn't flourish and advance based upon big wins and strategic conquering, but on the reversal of apparent losses. Strength and grace comes only through weakness. And so keeping Paul humble keeps him effective. Many people have a difficult time breaking into pastoral ministry, but the stars sort of aligned for me early in my career before I was really fully qualified or credentialed. I found myself on the pastoral staff of a rather large, prestigious church, and they helped pay for my seminary, which was very nice, um, and I made pretty good grades, even in Greek and Hebrew, which I hated. And when I left my previous job, I got the job that a number of people, uh, in my, a number of my seminary classmates wanted. And so I was up for ordination finally. I was going to be credentialed after a number of years of full-time ministry, helping people understand Christianity, and I got slaughtered. I got totally destroyed in my ordination exam. I did fine on the written test, but when I had to answer questions verbally on the fly in front of this committee of people, pastors, future colleagues, and then later on the, what they call the floor of presbytery, where there's 40 or 50 pastors and they can ask you anything, basically, theology, Bible, book of church order, whatever. And I went in prepared. I was going to ace this thing because, hey, I'd been doing ministry for a while, and I'd just been to seminary. I figured I knew it all. And they asked me everything about the Bible that I didn't know. The first question was, what psalm would I use to specifically counsel someone who is dealing with depression? And I completely blanked. I couldn't come up with anything. So I said Psalm 51, I think. They asked me to outline the book of Revelation, and all I could think of was bulls and horns and dragons, and, but I couldn't put them any, in any coherent order. And then they asked me, who was the left-handed Benjamite? Anyone know that? It's Ehud, by the way, if you ever find yourself in that situation, but I couldn't remember. I panicked, I started sweating and I barely passed. And I had to work with these colleagues for years after that and walk around, most of them realizing, you know, he barely made it into our group. (laughs) What business did I have being a pastor? It was terrible, and it took months to get over it. And even now, anytime I'm tempted to be impressed with anything I do, I remember that moment and the critical stares, the blank stares around that table And I sort of panic again. But it's my perspective keeper. And the thorn was Paul's perspective 
keeper. And more than that, it was his constant reminder of what following Jesus is really all about. So what are we to do with this in 21st century Portland? That we have to reach way back into 2,000 years of history to access this ancient text. And so much has changed since then. But so much also remains relatively unchanged because humans are still using the same operating system that they did in Corinth. And God is still moving from the loftiest of places to the lowliest. And those of us who see and acknowledge our weakness, those of us who can see ourselves in the lowliest of places can receive Him. So how do we do that? Just three things quickly. One is accepting the thorn. Accepting the thorn. For Paul, his resume wasn't of accomplishments of churches planted, of benefactors. His resume was built on the back of his weakness and his failing. He had learned that even a messenger of Satan could serve the purposes of God. It had brought him great torment, probably physical torment, But that pain had saved him from being exalted beyond measure. It had saved him from becoming sort of a celebrity pastor, a cult of personality that generates a lot of enthusiasm, but it's kind of built upon false premises. If if as Paul suggests that the way up is in fact the way down, And for in town and for us as individuals, our spiritual roots, we have to realize, grow deepest and strongest as we struggle through experiences that we probably wouldn't choose for ourselves. Sometimes what we perceive to be a thorn is actually a gift because it undermines our ego, because it, it... strangles the sense of control that we have over life. It tells us that we'll never be strong enough to fully master life. So sometimes not being promoted, sometimes our child not getting in the college that they want to, sometimes us not being the best and the brightest in the room, these things feel like thorns, and they are painful, let's be honest. Because God is asking us to die. God is asking us to crucify our ego, and that's painful. He's asking us to die to the way that the world measures success, and sometimes the only way that we can do this is to have all of our ego constructs collapse and us find ourselves in a place that we can't manage anymore, and we have to call out to God. He doesn't in any way minimize the pain or deny that these things are painful, that we can actually lament these thorns. We can even pray that God step in and change the circumstances because that's exactly what Paul did. But we have to remember that God doesn't normally show up in visions and epiphanies and in mountaintop type of experiences, but normally He shows up in the form of your life. He shows up in the form of difficulties. So first of all, we have to accept the thorn. 
It doesn't mean we can't pray against it. It doesn't mean that it's not real pain. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't sympathize with each other as we're going through those thorn moments. But we do have to accept it as a part of the way that God moves us to maturity, first of all. And he does that in order for us to see grace as sufficient. Verse 9, but he said to me, that is God to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. The word perfect doesn't refer to some ready-made, fully finished product that he sort of inserts into your life in a given moment. Unfortunately, what the text really says is that his power is being made perfect in your weakness. It's being made whole. You see, even God's grace doesn't arrive 100% formed in our lives because it's in our lives. It's through us and all of our fallenness and all of our idiosyncrasy that grace takes shape and begins to be made whole. Look at Paul. Look at his life. Just in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, you can read a litany of all of the things that went wrong in Paul's life that many of us would look to and say, well, this must not be God's will. He must not want me to go down this path because look at what's happening, and it's so difficult and terrible. Look at the church in Corinth, what we've been calling the compromised church. They have not arrived yet, and yet the gospel is at work in their church. And look at our our own lives. Grace hasn't reached a conclusion in any of our journeys. It hasn't fully redeemed and perfected any of our situations. Christ offers the sufficiency of His grace in the place where things are still broken. The Bible does talk about this yet-to-come time where every tear will be wiped away, but we live in the in-between time. We live in the already-not-yet time. So he doesn't offer solutions that conquer all of our problems, but what does he say? He says, my blood shed for you and my body broken for you. When we're grieving, when we're struggling with something and we invite friends in, we invite a spouse in, what do we normally not want them to do? We don't want them to immediately jump in and try to fix our problems. Well, here's the solution that I've come up with for your problems. No, what do we want? We want them to sit with us. We want them to draw close to us. We want them to perhaps physically embrace us. We want empathy. We want to know that they understand, or at least trying to understand, what we're going through. And that's what God does. That's how grace works. He offers Himself, not necessarily a change of circumstance. We learn to see grace as sufficient in those difficult places because, finally, that's how grace actually works. I read this this week, and it's been kind of bouncing around in my brain. And this person said, grace speaks most clearly to those who sense the unpromising shadow in their lives. Grace speaks most clearly to those who sense the unpromising shadow in their lives. We hear God, we meet God in the midst of weakness, not in the midst of strength. 
I love the Leonard Cohen song, Anthem. He says, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. There's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. So, if that's how grace works, then as we go through life and all that it throws at us, the difficulty of a divorce, the disillusion of a relationship, failure at work, old age, the pinch of deep questions and doubt, it's okay to pray for God to minimize the pain in those situations. It's okay to pray that He change the circumstances, but we also should be careful to pause and to sit in the discomfort, to sit with it long enough for us to reflect upon it and let the light in. Let the light in to find God's grace. Jesus prayed as He saw His life coming to an end, and He prayed, Father, would You take this cup away from me? Though not my will, but Yours be done. You see, Jesus had moved from the loftiest of places, that is, at the right hand of God the Father, and now He's in the lowest, facing an excruciating death. But that's how the light gets in. Because it was in His death that brought life to all of us. And so if the Son of God did not escape the shadow, then likely we won't either. But it's because He's been there that He can sit with us in ours. Let's pray. Father God, move into our lives. We pray. We pray for wonderful circumstances. We pray for everyone in this room to experience blessing this week, that they would see their darkness turn to light. Father, I pray that we would not fear the shadow and that we would be willing and courageous enough to sit in it so that your grace could show up in all of its beauty and it's in all of its uh, power. Lord, we pray that you would move into our church, move into our lives individually this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we move to the table, we're going to confess our faith, and our mission